I am really moved uh, by this series you are doing. If you haven't fallen behind it, please do. In all of my years in Christian ministry, uh, this is the most intentional series I have ever come across in the church where we are really making an effort from the Word of God to bring people together around the issue of diversity and inviting people to be those in the community who celebrate diversity in God's family. So this is really impressive stuff. And I'm hoping that as a result of the small groups, of the Bible studies, of the stuff from the front, and your personal and family and community diligence, something like this may spill over into other parts of your community and even the wider world of church. So, it's my uh, privilege to be looking at the idea of the elephant at the table. If we're talking about these issues of diversity, one of those key things we need to look at is the business of trust. And the anchor for my talk to you today is the text you would have read from Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion. I was thinking that it's one thing to have an elephant in the room. Uh, to have an elephant at the table is an altogether different kind of challenge. If it's in the room, you can kind of slide over to the other side of the room, can't you? But when the elephant joins us at the table, it gets really close up and can be very, very challenging indeed. And it takes us to a very important question, you know, who do you trust? So the structure of Acts chapter 9 tells us, first of all, of uh, the story of Saul, later to become Paul. I won't read the text, uh, but the structure is that Saul meets with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's heading out to do what he does, which is to persecute Christians. So he has official letters. He's on his way to um, seek out more Christians to have them killed because of their faith. And on the way, he meets Jesus of Nazareth. He sees, uh, hears a big voice. He falls off his horse. He's on the ground. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, and then he is sent to wait in a place in Damascus where he is praying. He's on a kind of a hunger fast, which is the kind of fast you do, you get hungry. And so while he's there, God then speaks to a man called Ananias and says to Ananias, um, I want you to go to Paul, Saul, and you're going to basically tell him that he's a chosen vessel for me. And Elias shows up to Saul in fear and trembling, prays for him, and we then see the beginning of the transformation of Saul's life. In Damascus, he then gets exposed to the Christian community and begins to have a very, very different profile developing. Later on, he even gets from Damascus to Jerusalem, where when he arrives in Jerusalem, the Christians there are still concerned about this murderer and kind of give him the cold shoulder. And once again, he has to win over confidences and trust in order to be integrated in the disciples' community in uh, Jerusalem. 
So the whole of Acts 9 is an amazing journey in the business of trust and in the expansion of the work of the kingdom. So the elephant at the table raises this very important question for Saul, and he does for us today, on this whole question of trust. Who do we trust? And we all know, once bitten, twice shy. And I know, I guess, that for many of us, perhaps for some of us in this building today, once you hear the subject of trust, you get a little bit jittery. Because your slogan in life is, trust no one. And you do it so well that sometimes you don't even trust yourself. And so this business of trust comes really close to the bone. If you see in Disney, you will recognize this character, Mr. Hiss. Uh, and it's almost a case of once bitten, twice shy, isn't it? I love this guy. Trust in me. I wish I had the video to show you. But you've seen it. This idea of somebody else imposing themselves on you and insisting that you should trust them. I always say anybody who asks you to trust them a lot is to be dealt with with great caution. Oh, you can trust me. You can trust me. If you have to say it too often, it's not a good signal. Just a little hint for your next business deal. And so the question of who to trust does present us with a real problem. Some of us have been hurt. We have run into relationships where we've given ourselves away to people in our family, to people of other cultures, to people in other communities, to close friends. We've been hurt badly. And so in trying to build a relationship which treats diversity seriously, it's really, really hard for us. And the first thing we're asking ourselves is, who can you really trust? I was in Africa some years ago, and Africans are very good at slogans. And I was passing this funeral parlor, and I saw this slogan. It said, I can't remember the name of this place, but it said, no, 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 and companies. And the slogan was, we're the last ones to let you down, which I thought was a brilliant, brilliant slogan. And so who we trust becomes a real challenge to us. But the question which follows from that is, what is trust? How do you know what you're talking about when you are talking about trust? Well, here's a little thing written by uh, an eminent professor of sociology. Trust is not an unconditional vote of confidence in people or a person. Trust is not an unconditional vote in people or a person. Actually, it wasn't said by an eminent professor of sociology. I made it up last week. But I find that when I say something was written by a very eminent professor, people write it down. They tend not to if I say it. But this isn't trust. You don't just go around willy-nilly putting your fortune and your family's legacy in anybody's hands. And some of us fail to trust other people. We fail to cross boundaries and barriers because we think this is what trust means. You have to be a little naive. You have to be Christian and generous. Almost have to be daft and give your life away. No, trust is not an unconditional um, 
kind of vote of confidence in people. But it does ask us to measure how we trust. And this is where we come back to some of the principles we discover in Acts chapter 9. Now, admittedly, Ananias had a bit of an advantage on us. He's about to cross a humongous threshold of trust because this guy who has a bad reputation of being a Christian killer is the guy who Ananias is going to have to go and minister to. So God gives him a little bit of a push in the back. This wasn't circumstantial. He didn't just kind of bump into Saul the day after and just happen to have a chance for evangelism without knowing who this guy is. So God sets him up. Well, the truth is that for most of us, in bridging the gap between ourselves and those whom we trust from other cultures, in other communities, even within our families and even friends who God brings in our way, we don't have the same kind of reassurance. Thus saith the Lord, trust Sandra, she's okay. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way, does it? But here are a couple of principles I would like to pass on to you from the things we read about from God's word and particularly from this text in Acts chapter 9. It's about God's optimism about people. I love what God says in Acts 9 verse 15. Go to this man. He is a chosen vessel. Here is one of the reasons why we do our utmost and we make the effort to take the risk and usually it's a kind of a risk of trusting people who are different from us who are other than us it is because God has a basic optimism about human relationships I know we talk a lot about the fall of humankind that's the subtext we go on in how we look at the world. People are fallen, rotten to the core, and therefore are generally to be disbelieved under all circumstances. But there's another subtext from the Bible, and that is the subtext that people are made in God's image. And therefore, there is a resident and residual element of optimism which God has put into each person. And I think we can approach diversity either by saying everybody is rotten to the core and therefore I am trusting nobody, or we can say even though people present in some particular ways, they are at core People made in God's image. People whom God loves. People God are committed to. People who God wants to see operate and become a different kind of person. And guess who he might use to achieve that? Yeah, little old scared rabbit you that God actually wants you to participate in this enterprise 
of transforming people made in his image, but who for the time being may have a different persona. They may have just come from prison. They may have a mental health condition. They may be social misfits. They may be people in your family or close quarters to you who are a proverbial pain in the neck. But God wants you to be drawn in to the enterprise of making them better, more like in God's image, and not to respond to the headlines about certain people groups. These are what immigrants are like. These are what immigrants do. I was at a bus stop uh, about a year ago, and I can't quite remember how we got into a conversation, but there's a guy who was waiting on the bus waiting for the bus, um, a slightly uh, more elderly gentleman than myself, and I have to watch how I describe those people these days. Um, but he got into one about immigrants, how disgusting it was that they were coming to take our jobs, and life isn't even the same, and Tottenham is not the same since these people were coming in from some parts of the world, and he went on. Um, the only problem was that he was saying all of this with a very thick Barbadian accent. <laughs> and I, I thought, excuse me, are you actually listening to yourself? I said, but that's what they used to say about you, mate. <laughs> I thought I'd give him my Cockney accent for authenticity <laughs> and to counteract this Barbadian accent which was coming at me in full flow. No, God wants us to push past the headlines and the caricatures about other people and see them as people made in God's image. And then here's the second thing Ananias had to do. He had to go to where he was. Acts 9.17. I love this. Ananias went to the house where Saul was placed his hands on him. Uh, from time to time, I do some work with some guys who really don't know what time of day it is. I mean, literally, they have big visions about the future. Um, they have massive visions about the future, but they're not quite sure about how tomorrow works or the day after that. And I remember I had arranged an appointment to meet with one of these guys uh, not long ago. And... Basically, it took like three hours of my time to meet this guy who didn't show up. I was about to get extremely angry with him when I felt the Lord say to me, No, no, he's not a CEO, he's not a Christian leader, he's not the head of a you know, he's not the head of some big church movement. This is the guy who doesn't know what time of day it is. You've actually got to go to where he is. You've got to encounter him in his reality in order to be a part of his redemption, a part of his future. And this is what I think God is saying to us as we, con as we contemplate 
and think about what it means to have all welcomed at the table, we have to face the elephant in the room which says, believe it or not, not everyone is just like you. Not everyone thinks just like you, is wired up just like you, is as organized as you, so that you know exactly what time of day you're going to have lunch, you know exactly what time of day to the minute you're going to have tea, you know exactly what time of day you will turn over the covers and get to bed, you even know what time of day you will start to snore. You have it together. Some people don't, they just don't. And so you have to get into the other person's shoes. Ananias came to where Paul was and placed his hands on him. I imagine Ananias really trembling at the thought of putting his hands on this guy who is a killer of Christians. What's he going to do? Just as I put my hand on his head, he's going to grab my wrist, turn me around, put my hand up my back, and lob my head off. Is he? So he took a risk, went to where he was, put his hand on his head. How about you? Are you actually willing to demythologize people, not to approach them by the headlines? This is how Eastern European people all behave. They all jump the queue at the bus stop. This is how Africans all behave. All Nigerians are loud. Ghanaians are softer. Go for the Ghanaian. This is how all Welsh people behave. They sing in the bar. This is how, you know. Do we go for these caricatures or do we insist in seeing the image of God in individuals and then seeing how we reach into their lives to help them be what God might have them be? Here's a third thing. It's about recognizing that people have multiple identities. There's a great book by a guy called Amartya Sen, and this book was written kind of during the Blairite period, and just when we were beginning to have to wrestle with the issue of violence from extremism. That wasn't the reason um, he wrote this book, but it touched on some of the issues which began to face us as communities during the 90s and early 2000s. And one of the extremely important points he makes is that everybody has multiple identities. I find this really fascinating, and I think it's a very important lesson to take away with us. So, there may be a presenting identity which somebody has, and then we judge them on the basis of that presenting identity, whatever we make of it, whatever we interpret it to be. So I remember many years ago when I was at London Bible College, now LST, um, 
this, yeah, this was slightly after the ark landed and people came out with the animals. It was a long time ago. And, uh, and I had a couple of good friends. Uh, well, the four of us used to hang around quite a lot. Um, a couple of white guys, a couple of black guys. We thought we'd balance it out quite nicely. And then I remember one of my white guy friends, who's now a big-time preacher in the States, but he shall remain nameless, came to my little room, and I had, I had an extensive library uh, by this stage. It must have been about, oh, I don't know, 20 books or so. And in my massive library of 20 books or so were two books about black history. One was a thing called The Peculiar Institution, which was about slavery, and the other was Stokely Carmichael, called Black Power. And my friend walked in, who had known me in the context of evangelical, Pentecostal, Christian, and he came to my little library, and he picked out these two books, and he said, aha, will the real Joel Edwards step forward? And I thought, what do you mean, the real Joel Edwards? That was an eye-opener for me, because it then got me to see how he saw me. And very often, people see us from the presenting identity, not the whole range of things we do or are. That's a real challenge if you're at the table with an elephant present. Ananias got to see another identity of Saul. Not just the persecutor of Christians, but a brother. I love this. Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to you. Oh, you don't get very excited by that. <laughs> I don't mind. Brother. So now there's another identity. I have this little suspicion that a part of the reason why Ananias may have been slightly traumatized by the meeting with Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul the Apostle, was that the reputation of this man was multiple, you see. He wasn't just a Christian killer. That was the presenting identity. They would also have known that he was highly connected. He had letters of authority from the institutional leaders of Judaism by which he had permission to persecute and kill people. And they would have known as well that this is a really, really smart guy. This man is an intellectual. Here's the thing. It's very easy for us to accept people at our table if they are inferior to us or just have a bad reputation and we're going to fix them. There's a kind of paternalism built into a lot of Christian activity by which we are always the missionaries. We are always the ones to sort other people out. But when we run into other people who may be intellectually better than us or have a wider CV than us, that can also be slightly terrifying. And you know that, don't you? Because... It's easier to deal with people we can control or where we control the agenda, where we are the good gal and the good guy because here is a beaten up person, 
Here is a down and out. Here is somebody who is struggling. Here is somebody who doesn't know what time of day it is. Here is someone who hasn't got a job. Here is a prostitute trying to go straight. Here is an ex-con trying to get a job. We can do that. We don't mind those kinds of people at the table. But if it's an Oxford grad or a Don or somebody who is eminently outstripping us in their intellectual or professional capacity, maybe we are inclined to pull back a little. And this was Saul. Saul was a man of many parts. And the challenge for us as we reach out to do diversity is to recognize that people have different parts, different identities. So you can actually be black and British. I'm not sure if you can be black and English. We're still trying to work that out, I think. <laughs> but you can be African with a British passport. You can be from Syria, you can be from Iran, and not just be a migrant, an immigrant, somebody who needs help. You can actually be a doctor from Iran. You can be somebody of real substance around the table. And the challenge facing us is how we embrace different people with different parts and explore the complexity and the wealth and the depth of those around the table. Find out who these people are so that we can recognize that we truly are a part of a big family. The work I do in Christian Solidarity Worldwide, I'm the director of advocacy, is about working with people from very different faiths traditions who we often bring together because they are persecuted for their faith. What is the thing which often goes down the middle of these tensions? Identity, nationalism, persecution. That's exactly where Saul was. As a Jew of the highest caliber, he didn't like these ragamuffin semi-Jews who were coming in calling themselves the followers of the way. And his task was to stamp them out, not just in the name of, uh, of God, but because he was of a particular national persuasion. And what is happening here with Ananias and Saul is a humongous cultural transition taking place. Okay, so I've got about three minutes to give you half an hour's <laughs> sermon. Why trust? And I'm going to make these really quick, even though they're perhaps amongst the most important things we could be saying. Why should you trust? Well, in the first instance, we are helping to build an alternative past. A young guy I was working with couldn't quite understand why it was that nobody trusted him. I said, well, actually, <laughs> the problem is, um, you know, you, you do the same thing to people all the time, so they think maybe they can't 
trust you. And we began to talk about building an alternative past. How do you work with people to build a new past? That takes time, it takes diligence, it takes honesty. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to Gentiles and their kings. It hasn't happened yet. We haven't even begun. But what we're dealing with here, this other person, Ananias, is God is going to build a new kind of past in their lives. Isn't that a wonderful idea? I made it up. And that's the enterprise God calls you, to work with people of other cultures and other inclinations to build new futures, to build new paths with them. But here's my last point. Ananias became a happy man. Can you imagine a year later, two two years later, as Paul, Saul, now Paul, was blazing the Christian trail? People are talking about this man who was an excellent preacher of the word and teacher. He's got a ravenous appetite for the gospel and for evangelism. Can you imagine this man, Ananias, quietly down there in Damascus, following Paul's email and tweets and seeing what this guy's doing? And again and again, Ananias will go back to that time in that room where he laid hands on a stranger with a particular reputation and said, Brother Saul. He's never going to forget that moment, is he? And anything Paul achieves, Ananias has an investment in it. You trust, we trust, because what God will do through others He invites you to be a participant in. And you become a better person if you recognize God's image in people, take the risk, and trust God's agenda in other people's lives. God bless you.